Welcome to Awesome Movie Year, the podcast where we take a look back at an awesome year for movies, which is every year. My name is Josh Bell, film critic and writer, and I am here with my co-host. I'm Jason Harris, comedian, filmmaker, queen of suburbia. <laughs> you are the queen of suburbia, and 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 I think you have some familiarity with the suburbia of the film that we are about to talk about. In this season, we've been talking about the films of 1996, and in this episode, we're talking about the Sundance Film Festival Grand Jury Prize winner, Welcome to the Dollhouse, which is in fact set in the suburbs of New Jersey, where Jason Harris is from. It was a trip down memory lane in many ways, this one, Josh. Yeah, I'm sure that it was. I did not grow up in the suburbs of New Jersey, but I did live in, in suburbs uh, of, of various other places. So I, I feel like I have some, some familiarity with ugly couches and things like that. Um, <laughs> so Welcome to the Dollhouse was sort of an indie sensation, uh, along with its win at Sundance. It grossed $5 million at the box office on its budget of $800,000. So Solid results for a small-scale film like this, which is certainly not something that is going to reach the mainstream. It uh, Before Sundance, it premiered at the Toronto International Film Festival in 1995, uh, in September, and then played at Sundance in 1996, where it won that grand jury prize, and then was released in theaters later in 1996. It also won an Independent Spirit Award for the Best Debut Performance by Heather Matarazzo, who plays the main character Dawn Wiener, the awkward seventh grader in suburban New Jersey, was nominated for several other Independent Spirit Awards, including Best Feature, uh, Best Director for Todd Solons, Best Supporting Male for Matthew Faber, who plays Dawn's also awkward and nerdy brother, and another best debut performance for Brendan Sexton III, who plays Dawn's um, boyfriend slash rapist, I guess maybe we could call him. Um, well, I mean, he technically never raped her, Josh. So, that is you know. true. He only threatened to rape her at knife point, but we can make a point in his favor that he did not follow through. Right. I mean, if you want to be honest about the movie, you have to say that he didn't do that. He just threatened rape repeatedly, telling her where to be and when for the raping. That is true, but uh, he did not follow through with that. Definitely, yeah. a, that's a tough performance to give, so <laughs> yeah. props, props to Brendan Sexton. And then a budding romance started between those two after uh, horrible treatment and uh, threats of sexual violence. So yeah, that, if you haven't seen this movie, you're in for a wild ride today. Fun stuff in Welcome to the Dollhouse, um, the chronicle of the awkward and very unpleasant Don Wiener, played by Heather Matarazzo. As it, this movie was very awkward uh, and, and sort of hard to watch, I would say, but it was very well reviewed. Uh, Siskel and Ebert gave it two thumbs up, and both of them had it on their top 10 list for 1996. Ebert had it at number uh, five, and Siskel had it at number eight. In his review, and I always love that we've talked about this, I think, numerous times, but I always enjoy the Roger Ebert reviews where he decides to reminisce about his own childhood when he's reviewing movies. So hopefully this uh, you're not going to a point where he said he once threatened a fellow classmate uh, with rape at knife point. Mm, no, no, he did not. But there there's some uh, uh, 
I don't know. Ebert maybe wasn't always the most upstanding, but no, he was on the the receiving end, it sounds like, of the bullying when he was a child. Uh, He said, Welcome to the Dollhouse remembers with brutal and unforgiving accuracy the hell of junior high school. Many movies reconstruct those years as a sort of adolescent paradise. It's a shock watching this film to remember how cruel kids can be to one another and how deeply the wounds cut. I can recall today with perfect accuracy the names and faces of 11-year-olds who made my life miserable. If I met them today, so many years later, would I forgive and forget? Not a chance. I still hate them. <laughs> was, I, was I also cruel? Did I have my own victims? Strange, but I can't remember. And then later, later he says, if you can see this movie without making a mental hit list of the kids who made your 11th year a torment, then you are kinder or luckier than me. So, <laughs> you know, uh, it's it's funny because, uh, as you said, as you alluded to, I grew up in suburban New Jersey where this movie takes place. And, uh, yeah, they were all mean to each other. But like what we consider today bullying was just part of like, eh, these are how kids are back in the day. Like if I saw the kids who like tormented me, I would probably be like, yeah, we're cool. And if there were kids who thought I tormented them, which I'm sure there were, you know, we were all. We were all growing up and making mistakes. I would apologize and be like, I, uh, I hope I can buy you a beverage of your choice. Well, that's very, very big of you. Um, I, I can't say that. I mean, you're right, I suppose, that some some of the behavior that we see in this movie was not considered by some people at the time to be unacceptable or it was it was viewed as just sort of like a fact of growing up but i don't think that makes it in any way okay i mean i don't think and i don't think the movie is is trying to say that the way that people behave in this movie is like acceptable at all i i agree i agree with all of that i'm i'm you know as we often do on this show we have to put it in the time period where one it was made and two you know if it's a if it's reflective of a different time period Um, which this is both, right? This is reflective of that kind of mid-90s era and then probably also what it was like for Todd Solon's growing up, you know? So uh, I'm just saying, you know, the needles move and and we respect that and try to become better. But um, yeah, it is, um, I I mean, dude, this was like so much of this just was like a part of life growing up. Not not the knife point rape threats, of course, but... (laughs) But I mean, like, for instance, they use the word faggot constantly, right? They do. They do. Dave, Dave, you grew up in Pennsylvania, you know, Mm -hmm. I'm sure you heard that. And you uh, look guilty as charged. I'm sure I've used that word derogatorily. And I'm glad I have matured way past then and, you know, have learned that. But I think it's tougher for kids. And I still think kids today probably use it, hopefully not as much. But yeah, I mean. I do think this was an honest look, uh, neither pro nor con of that of that uh, growing up experience. Well, I think it's an honest look, but it's to say that it's neither pro or con, I think is completely wrong. It's completely con. I don't think there's any pro about this movie at all. (laughs) I I like I, you know, I just disagree. I think I think this is this is what it was, you know, so I think I mean, I don't. I don't think the movie is like endorsing any any of the behavior of really any of the characters at all. I'm not saying it's endorsing it. I said it's it's neither pro nor con. 
Well, it's a neutral look at it. It's neutral. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I don't even see it as neutral. To me, the tone of this movie is everyone in this movie is terrible. And and that's the the sort of tone of (laughs) all of Todd Solon's work. But I mean, yeah, I don't I don't see it as neutral. I see it as entirely con. And Uh, see, Josh, I think that's one of the strengths of this movie is that like you're not seeing one character being bullied. You're seeing everyone being a horrible asshole to each other, you know, like and I think that is that shows just kind of how it permeated that culture. Yeah, I, I agree, but I don't think that you can label that as neutral then. I think that is depicting how toxic and terrible that culture is. At least is that's the aim. Well, I grew up in it, so maybe maybe <laughs> maybe I have a little uh rose-colored uh shades I got punched in by a bully or two. But uh yeah, yeah I, I mean you know. I mean I didn't I like I said I didn't grow up in New Jersey, but I certainly I mean I went to middle school. I went to junior high. I had experiences and I was bullied and I don't have any rosy memories of any of that. I don't, I, you know, I'm, I'm more on Ebert side where if I, (laughs) if I saw someone who tormented me, you know, all like many, many years ago, would I forgive and forget? I would not, I don't think. And I certainly don't, even if I could look at someone today as an adult who approached it the way you were describing and apologized and, you know, understood that they did things that were not acceptable. Even if I could then accept that from that person, I don't think I would look back on what actually happened with a, with a rosy colored, uh, reflection at all. Yeah. yeah, I hear that. And maybe I'm not, look, there are two points. Maybe I'm saying this a little too wistfully as opposed to <laughs> neutral because I really enjoyed the movie, you know? Yeah. And a lot of it did ring true to what what I grew up around, you know? Um, yeah. But also, Josh, we want you to let go. That's the other <laughs> point of this podcast. Let go of the baggage of the bullying that uh, you suffered back in the day, which, hey, we're making light of it. You, you went through some, some bullying, but nothing compared to what uh, other people go to. No, absolutely. And I know nothing compared to what Don Wiener goes through. I don't want to make it sound like I was, you know, uh, a victim of some horrible crime or something like that. So Lisa Schwartzbaum in Entertainment Weekly also had her own memories of uh, seventh grade. She said, uh, it's a scientific fact that humans are never crueler to one another than during the junior high school years. If your seventh grade graduate's fists don't clench in anxious empathy during the movie's opening scene as Dawn carries her awful tray full of barfy food into the hideous school cafeteria filled with horrible schoolmates desperately searching for a safe place to sit, then you were educated by homeschooling. And then, you know, from a more critical standpoint later, she says, uh, Todd Solons also creates keen portraits of the participating characters in Dawn's daily drama. The only downside is the drama veers unsteadily toward outlandishness. In particular, the affectless violence of Brandon the bully, stripped away, reveals just another scared kid trying to survive his own miserable home life. Dawn's brother, talentlessly honking away on his clarinet, opens a window into the special misery of teenage boys. And did I mention that Dollhouse is smartly comic? I have a feeling that Dawn Wiener and Heather Matarazzo will one day soon bloom into talented and beautiful young women. And that's that particular observation that that this is a movie that, you know, you sort of root for Dawn to grow up and and move past this and and become a better person and, and, you know, 
show up her bullies or whatever. That idea came through in, in, in a number of reviews that I read. And I don't get that at all in the movie. I mean, to me, one of the things that struck me most about watching the movie again this time is that Dawn is also a terrible person. Yeah, and- that's a, that's fair, man. Because, yeah, basically what what the bullies do to her at school, she does to her younger sister, you know. So um, that's one issue. And then, of course, as the movie goes on, she doesn't tell Missy to get a ride home. And we we know where that leads to uh, her younger sister's kidnapping and Right. And then I think also, I mean, I guess we could, this is sort of a spoiler. I don't know. Not that there's a big plot revelation at the end, but I don't think the movie leads us to a point where we are optimistic for Dawn as a person. You know, I don't think it gets to an ending where we think she's learned anything or that she'll grow or change or that she'll, uh, you know, transcend what happened to her. So I did, I don't get that at all. But again, that was something that, that she's not the only critic, Lisa Schwartzbaum, who said that. Yeah, well, spoiler alert, if you follow Todd Solon's career, he uh, things don't end up too well for Don Wiener in future films that he revisits her with. Right, they do and they don't, which is an interesting, weird thing that he did. But we'll talk about that later. Another um, thing is, uh, I think I think it is right. Like, I mean, I'm saying like right now, like, hey, man, I, I'd like to see the kids I went to seventh grade with. But uh, yeah, seventh grade, eighth grade, miserable, miserable years. So, you know. I guess maybe maybe it was fun just seeing uh, someone else go through the misery, you know, not <laughs> not just myself. Yeah, I uh, I definitely had an especially bad year in uh, seventh grade, and I still remember John Fina, seventh grade. I would not forgive that dude. Uh, anyway, <laughs> David Anson in Newsweek said Todd Solon's purges all sentimentality from his tale. No swain awaits to turn this duckling into a swan. Dawn's torment does not serve to ennoble her. Preyed upon by the stronger and more popular, she apes their cruelty by casting her own epithets, retard, faggot, upon those even lower on the pecking order. The beauty of Welcome to the Dollhouse is its poker-faced objectivity, which neither condescends to its pubescent victim nor romantically inflates her plight. Solon's, whose film won the top prize at Sundance, refuses to let the audience traffic in nostalgia. You'll laugh and wince simultaneously and be very grateful that you'll never be 11 again. And that's more closer to my reaction. Again, I don't, I don't think this, this movie gives Dawn any sort of uh, redemption or nobility at all. But see, I heard that and I thought that's what I was, that's what I've been trying to say for the last few minutes. Cause he said it neither, you know, paints it with this pretty brush nor hammers it, you know, as this awful, extra awful experience. It's just what it was. No, but see, what he says is he does, it doesn't condescend to her and it doesn't romantically inflate her. But I don't think he's saying that it, it, it doesn't judge or that it's neutral from a, a moral standpoint. But uh, I guess we, we, we kind of, I don't know. And I, I mean, I'm not necessarily like uh, in entirely in disagreement with what you're saying there. In part, one of the things that I don't like about Todd Solon's work is that it is sort of like unsentimentally cruel. You know, and then it's not that it's neutral per se, but that it doesn't have any sympathy for any of the people in any of the characters. Um, so you could you could sort of interpret that as a as a kind of a neutrality in a way, I guess. Sure. And I think, again, that was one of the things I liked about it was I mean, I, I could totally see someone watching this and being like, this movie is, you know, warped or disgusting or not, you know, just mean and like. I laughed at so much of it, you know, that 
Um, I think maybe it's a sense of humor thing also. So, you know, we all have our personal taste, but I, I thought it was like, he was just, he was extra cruel to every character there. So, and I, and, and I laughed at a lot of it, you know? Yeah. All right. Yeah. I, I, I didn't really this time, Um, which was, I mean, it was interesting because, okay, so I had seen this movie before, probably in 1996 or 1997. This is one of those movies. I think a lot of the movies, especially on the indie level that we talked about this season is something that I had heard about or read about in, you know, some magazine or something, maybe even Entertainment Weekly that was helping me figure out what were cool, smaller things. And I rented it on video. And I think I liked it at the time, but I honestly don't remember. I remember having seen it, but I didn't really remember much of my reaction at all. So um, had you seen it before, Jason? Yeah, probably around the same time I saw it on video and I did like it and I liked it again this time. I can see from a writing standpoint how you could say like, oh, it just feels like a bunch of sketches put together or maybe it's the reality is a little uh, heightened or not grounded. But I feel like, I don't know, man, it all I I just the characters are so weird and awkward and I got so many laughs out of it. It was just fun for me to watch. Yeah, see, I didn't laugh. That was the other thing. I don't know if I laughed at it the first time, but. I didn't really find anything about it funny this time. So, Dave, have you have you seen this, Dave? I have. It's been a while though. I tried to rewatch it. I didn't get a chance to. I but I was laughing at the trailer though. Yeah, it's kind <laughs> of a it's kind of a chore to watch. I felt like. I mean, it's a very short movie, but it felt like for me like a lot of effort to get through. And time. I didn't. I did. And I have watched movies like that recently. Comedies that just don't add up and man it's like it takes time and effort this was a breeze for me i could watch it again right right now so oh yeah i definitely would not want to do that um but we'll talk more about that then uh we come back in a moment and get into our general thoughts on welcome to the dollhouse Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this episode of our season on the films of 1996, we've been talking about the Sundance Grand Jury Prize winner, Welcome to the Dollhouse from Todd Solons. And as we were previously discussing, Jason, pro-bullying. That's really, I think, the uh, <laughs> the lesson of that, that early segment. There. Yeah, I, I am not pro-bullying. Let me go on the record. In fact, I'm pro um beating up the bully as a matter of fact you know fight back against the bullies everybody yeah yeah i don't know if that's really that much better though because as we learned it just makes you into a bully then when you fight back that's i feel like the lesson of this movie is that and you've missed it and you're so well now we're going to get into a philosophical discussion if you don't (laughs) fight back then the bully's going to keep bullying you uh yeah that's that's possible but the other possibility is that you do fight back and the bully keeps bullying you. And then you have become a violent person and a cruel person yourself. And no one wins. It's a sick, sadistic, twisted world of junior high school. And uh, yeah, we would all prefer no bullies. But like we, I said, we would. you know, uh, you, you dealt with it. I'm sure I dealt with the, the mean, the mean, the mean girls, but they were boys. And uh, I don't know. I guess it was just so unflinching and so unapologetic. And so cruel to everybody that that's what I liked about this. And, you know, all these all the characters, at least the kids are have not developed into human beings yet. So they all have these weird dreams that are unattainable. 
you know, you know, where like uh, Mark, right? That's the older brother, Mark. He just wants to get into a good school. Is that his name? I, I yeah, I, it is. It is. I feel like that's. I mean, he's he's portrayed as like incredibly nerdy and clearly good at computer science. I mean, he manages to tutor Steve, the burnout rocker guy into getting an A in computer science like that. He's got to be pretty good at computer science to do that. So I feel like his dream of going to a good college is probably more attainable than Steve's dream of becoming a rock star, which will right. definitely never happen. Right. Steve goes to New York to become a rock star. I'm not saying Mark won't get into a good college. I'm saying I think he will look back and say, man, I worked so hard to get into a good college. I missed out on a lot of life. You know, right. Well, that's the point. I think there's that, especially there's that one weird scene that's never followed up on where he reads the letter from his like summer camp girlfriend who's like, Why aren't you responding to me? And if you don't respond, then I'll assume we're not together. And he just kind of folds it up. And obviously, he feels like his computer science is more important. So, which I thought that was a weird moment, but you're right. That reflects what you were just saying. Yeah, that is a weird scene and, uh, and really um, not from the point of view of most of the movie. But, uh, and then Dawn, of course, has this has the age old crush on the uh, high school boy. And she was going to profess her, her love to him, even, even if he, he's hooking up with another girl at the time. And it's just horribly, horribly misguided uh, youth in this, in this instance. Yeah. Well, and yes, that's true. The youth are all misguided, but the adults aren't any better. I mean, Dawn's parents are terrible. They treat her like shit. Uh, they favor her annoying, precocious little sister who always wears a tutu. They always take the side of the person who's against her. And uh, when she runs away, they don't even care. They're annoyed at the fact that she's gone. So uh, the teachers treat her. To, nobody is good. There's nobody in this movie that you can point to who's turned out well. Well, Josh, you're kind of exactly like the mom, because when Dawn gets in trouble for uh, shooting a spitball that hits the teacher in the eye and then... Uh, many, many weeks later, when we revisit that teacher, she's still wearing an eye patch because of the spitball, which is a very funny callback. But anyway, she's in the principal's office and her parents are called in and uh, she Don says, I was just trying to fight back, talking about the bullies who were bullying her. And and uh, Don's mom says, who told you to fight back? So you're just like Don's mom, Josh. That's my yeah, point here. That is that is one <laughs> moment where, uh, yes, I I suppose I would agree. But even it's just the way that she says it, even. It's not that she's sympathetic to what happened to Dawn and understands her desire to fight back, even though she disapproves of doing it. She's dismissive of Dawn's entire existence. You're right. You're right. She's she's clearly the least favorite of the three children. You know, uh, Mark yes. and Missy have, uh, have definitely become the apples, uh, especially Missy of mom's eye. And then Dad's just trying to not make waves and go along and get his chocolate cake for dessert. And and we see that even when uh, when mom at the dinner table says stuff like, you're not leaving this table till you tell your sister you love her. And, and dad's like, just don't make this difficult, you know, things like that. Um, so so, yeah, I mean, every every again, the recurring theme, everyone's horrible to everyone, although Mark's not really horrible to anyone, I don't think. I mean, I suppose he's less horrible to Dawn. He's just kind of dismissive of her. Um, although they do have that one moment where she says, she asks him, you know, do, do things get better in high school or whatever? And he gives her a sort of sympathetic answer. Yeah, but, that's a great scene, I think, you know. Yeah. I mean, you know, that whole thing is, you know, she says, is eighth grade better than seventh grade? And he goes, no, pretty much all of middle school sucks. High school gets better. 
because people will still make fun of you, but they won't say it to your face as much, you know, but uh, uh, I thought that was a really good scene and one of the more memorable ones of the film. Yeah, it's a memorable scene because it's one of the only moments where people show any amount of like human compassion, which is something that's completely absent from the movie otherwise. So, yeah, I mean, I guess you could argue that that Mark is is slightly less horrible to her. Although he really just cares about his college application and doesn't care about her. And his uh, garage rock baby. And he doesn't even care about the garage rock. He only cares about the band as a way to facilitate his college application as an extracurricular activity that he can put on his uh, resume or whatever. He doesn't, he's not, he's not like Steve. He's not trying to be a rock star while he plays his clarinet. Well, he wrote, I mean, look, let's give the quadratics or credit. You know, they did play the Wiener's 20th anniversary party, which featured an original composition by Mark, you know, talking about all of the parents' accomplishments throughout the, throughout time. That's true. Dad's the, the breadwinner of breadwinners there. Yeah, I thought the uh, original music by the Quadratics was maybe a little too unrealistically accomplished, um, especially the like theme song to the movie, Welcome to the Dollhouse, um, which is quite a catchy, nice little song. And that, of course, was, you know, not performed by the actors. But as a as a representative of like these college idiots or high school idiots, I didn't believe it. I felt like they were too good. Did you recognize one of the other band members? I did, yeah. I was going to talk about that later. But yes, Ken Lung, who we all know mainly from Lost, plays, uh, I forget what his name was. Was Barry? Yeah, I think Barry, the keyboard player. Looks very different. I didn't recognize him. I only noticed when I saw his name in the credits. Uh, I agree. That's how, you know, just researching the film, that's how I figured it it out too. But that was kind of a fun thing. Um, You know, this is almost like something I'm going to have to bring up in a therapy session, Josh, because (laughs) you keep making all these good points about how horrible people are to each other in this film. And I'm just like, yeah, wasn't that hilarious? Wasn't that enjoyable? Like, um, for example, like there's this there's this great line after um, after Brandon and uh, Dawn are in there, like in the special people's clubhouse, which is the clubhouse she and her neighbor Ralphie made in the backyard. And well, this is when they're in the clubhouse, I guess. And she, uh, Brandon says to Don, he goes, why do you hang out with that faggot? And she says, just because he's a faggot doesn't mean he's an asshole. And I thought that pretty much summed up like the entire relationship of every single person in this movie uh, to a T. Yeah. Yeah. Where it's just like, uh, one insult replaced with a different insult. Uh, right. Dawn tries to protect Troy, another nerd from the bullies. And she asks, are you all right, Troy, after they stop punching him? And, and he goes, leave me alone, wiener dog, which is her nickname, you know, and runs away. So every, but that's what I'm saying. Everyone is horrible in a way that they, it's almost like arrested development. No one has any emotional development uh, at all or the ability to develop emotionally. here. That is true. Arrested development, another thing people love that I don't like, but um, that's a separate conversation. I will say though, even though I didn't like, I I was sort of surprised, maybe not as much as I would have been, but somewhat surprised at least that I didn't like this. I really didn't like this movie this time, having remembered, I thought, liked it, liking it. But I will say, even though I didn't really laugh at anything in this movie, I don't think it's problematic to laugh. I mean, I think it's okay. You can laugh at the horrible things in this movie, and it doesn't mean you don't think that they're horrible. So I don't think it's bad that you laughed at stuff. It doesn't reflect poorly on you from like a moral standpoint. Yeah, I'm definitely not, you know, pro 
beating people up and doing all these things. But uh, yeah, because it's weird. If if you were saying that, then you, we've already talked about all the critical acclaim this got, Josh. So you you know you're missing the boat on this one, buddy. Oh no, I obviously I am, and I mean I, I was just trying to defend you when you were saying maybe it was uh, concerning that you need to talk to your therapist about having <laughs> laughed at the movie, and I'm saying it's okay. Thank you can you, laugh, Josh. Thank yeah, you. I mean, you know, I don't know what your therapist would think, but I, I feel like it's all right. So it's really, it's I laughed a lot, like I said, um, Josh. What were the things you did? Like you had to like Heather up Maserato. She's great in this movie. I mean, her performance is good. She's effectively playing this incredibly awkward, unpleasant person. Um, so yeah, especially to have done that at, I think she was 13 at the time and she's playing an 11 year old. Um, absolutely. It's an impressive performance. And as I was saying earlier about Brendan Sexton, who also really hadn't, hadn't acted before, uh, it's not easy to play that kind of, you know, uh, quasi rapist or whatever, uh, aspiring rapist, maybe we could call him. Um, <laughs> He calls her on the phone and he says, tomorrow, three o'clock, you know, meet me after school. I'm going to rape you. And it's so shocking to hear. It is so shocking to hear. Like, how do you react to that as an audience member? Because it's uh, it's at once like horrible and ridiculous the way it's presented. Yeah, it it, it is. And it's tough to you know, there's a lot of like, it's tough to maintain a balance there. And especially because that Brandon character, you later learn about his terrible home life and you want to have some kind of maybe not sympathy, but at least understanding for him and why he does what he does. And so as an actor, I think it's difficult to, to play all of those elements of it. And, and I think he does. And, and to do that when you're a child, I think he does as well as could be expected. So yeah, those performances are fine. I mean, I think my issue with with this and, and with other Todd Solon's movies are that whether the performers, the actors are good or not, the performances are in service of just this vision that's just so unpleasant and audience alienating and and provocative, but in 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 this this sort of hollow way, I think. I mean, to me. We were talking about the reality of this and, and you know, how it reflects your experiences in New Jersey and obviously these critics talking about their own experiences. And, and I had some kinds of experiences like this too. But to me, the movie is so, as, as one of those reviews alluded to, it's just so over the top in its depiction of this that maybe at first you're like, oh, wow, this is painfully real. But I felt like as the movie went on, it was just painful and it wasn't real anymore. It was like a cartoon of it. Right. And I think a lot of people have, and like you mentioned, did disagree with that because it wouldn't have received all that acclaim if people felt that way. Right. Right. I'm not saying that, that I think that this, this was not a, I feel like it's a common perspective for a lot of his later films, but not so much at the time that this movie came out. And even now I was also looking at Letterboxd where, you know, there's a lot of people who are just talking, commenting on having seen it recently. And most of the response there is still very positive. So I think this, you're, you're right. You're, you, you know, the positive perspective is more common, but to me, I felt like this was a maybe less unpleasant version than some later Todd Solon's movies. But I, I, I had a similar response to what I've had, what I felt when I've seen some of his other movies, that it's just like, it's an effective depiction of a bunch of terrible stuff that I don't want to watch. That's fair. And I would say, you know, hey, he's an independent voice and I'm glad that he's he's around to present those those concepts in the way that he is presenting them. 
But I have two questions for you, Josh. One, why does Heather, when Brandon says meet me at X place so I can rape you, why does she keep going to those places? Uh, I mean, to me, I think it's a combination of her desire to sort of um, fit in and get along and do what people say, even though he's a terror, you know, he's a bully, but she just what she so badly wants to be accepted that even if being accepted means getting raped, that she'll do it. And I think partly, and this is a, maybe a more problematic perspective that he, Todd Solons is maybe implying that she wants to get raped. Not that she wants to get raped maybe, but that she wants to have sex with Brandon and that she's equating his threat of rape with, hey, I'm going to get to lose my virginity and that's something that I want. And the way that he, his attitude toward her is portrayed later, that he is actually kind of, you know, tender towards her, it, it could theoretically support that. Um, but I think really the main thing is just about the idea of wanting to fit in so badly that you'll willingly show up to get raped if that's what it takes. Um, I kind of, I kind of agree with you on the second point more than the first point. I thought that that's what it was, was that there was some weird attraction and, you know, I'm not sure how seriously she was taking the threat of being raped, but I think she was, uh, like you said, intrigued at the thought of losing her virginity, even if it meant she had to go along with this horrible plan of his, you know? I mean, I think there is some genuine fear there, especially the first time when uh, she she and ends up being able to run away because the janitor right. comes out the door and he's got a knife to her throat. Like, how can you not be afraid if someone has a knife to your throat? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I I guess it's just weird that she would go back afterwards then. Right, right. I mean, but I'm just saying that the idea that she's not afraid I think is wrong, that she is afraid and she goes despite being afraid either, again, because fitting in is more important than her fear or because like you're saying, she, she wants that, that sexual experience. And, uh, you know, that's also, that's more important than the fear. Right. But I think the fear is there. Well, I don't think it is the second time because not only does she meet him, she, she lets him lead her to like an abandoned area of town where there's just like a mattress and an old rundown house. And it's like, you would not go with someone just, following along at that point in time if you were scared, I don't think. No, I mean, I think that you would. And I think that's part of the point of the movie is that the, this, this this desire to fit in at that age, but maybe at any age, is so strong that it overrides even like a survival instinct. Yeah. So this, so this is one of the things I like about the movie is it does make you ask those uncomfortable questions. You know, these are really uncomfortable things to deal with. Yeah. Even as a viewer. Yeah, I mean, I think I think its desire to create discomfort uh, overrides its effectiveness as a narrative and as a depiction of character and as a piece of art, but it definitely does make you uncomfortable. That is true. My second question to you is, the last time we see Brandon, he's running away from home. What happens to Brandon? Well, I mean, we see him in a later Todd Solon's movie, if you want to look at it that way. But I mean, just from the perspective of this movie, I think... Nothing good happens to any of these people. And this is like what I was saying about Dawn is that the way the movie ends, I mean, maybe she doesn't end up on the streets or something, but she doesn't, there's no redemption for her. My guess is Brandon becomes a homeless drug addict would be my yeah. guess. I, I would say this, the one the one character who has good things happen to her is Missy, the younger sister, who even after being kidnapped by like 
the local pedophile. The uh, Mark says like, oh, she probably had so much fun because she was getting McDonald's and he never actually touched her or something like that, you know. So she comes out shining even in the worst of situations. Yeah, like, but okay, A, that really minimizes the horrifying nature of kidnapping and pedophilia. Sure, Um, but that's what this movie does on all of those things that we're talking about. No, but I think it doesn't minimize those other things necessarily. I mean, it wants you to wallow in the the horror of what Dawn experiences, and yet it completely writes off what Missy experiences because she's annoying. And I don't think, but but even that aside, I think I, I don't think the movie is 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 showing you good things to come for Missy. I mean, Missy's going to grow up to be an entitled bitch, right? I mean, she already is. That's the point. Maybe she'll grow up to be a famous ballet dancer, Josh. But I, I want to disagree with you on one thing, though. I yeah. don't think I don't think you're wallowing in in those situations with Dawn that are, like we said, horrible and uncomfortable. I think there's, for whatever reason, there's so much humor behind them that it's almost like I don't want to say tongue in cheek, but it's meant to be funny, and it is funny to a lot of people, obviously. So I don't think there's wallowing. I think you wallow. Um, I mean, I agree it's meant to be funny and a lot of people find it funny. I thought it was wallowing um, and I didn't really find it funny. But but yeah, uh, that's not the perspective that it seems like a lot of people have about this movie. Yeah, this is a really uh, unique conversation for us because it's not as simple as Forrest Gump where it's like, hey, you hated it because you thought it was too sentimental and weepy and I, you know, liked it because I liked it. But this is like, I liked it because I see a very humorous film here and you're saying no none of that existed and these are all very horrible situations that uh shouldn't it be shouldn't be made light of but i think you can joke about anything you're saying and i know you you agree you're just saying this is not an effective joke right exactly yeah i mean i definitely am not saying that you can't joke about these things or that there are certain things that that are un, unavailable for joking i don't think that this is effective but i do think it's meant to be funny i'm not disagreeing about that point um i think that todd solon's intends for it to be funny a lot of people find it funny i don't think that it is effective and i i find just i find his perspective in this and 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 his other films just very shallow and empty and provocative for no particular benefit. Um, and I think this is a more palatable version of this than, than his other work is maybe, but I, I just, it's still, again, watching it this time, I wasn't quite sure what I would think of it. And I just, as it was going on, I was trying to find, I was like, wait, so what, what is it, you know, where is something in this movie that I can like, that I liked? What did I like about this? And I don't know. I will say, I appreciated, um, I think from a design standpoint, like the production design and especially the costume design in this movie is very effectively ugly. I, I, I love how like literally every outfit that every character wears in this entire movie is extremely hideous and also accurate to what people wore at the time. I thought there was a lot of nice fashion. no i mean it was bright and uh obnoxious a lot of the time i'm not going to say every character wore something hideous brandon just wore jeans and flannels you know he was grungy but um, i guess yeah but i know what you mean there yes yeah i mean i i feel like it's deliberate i mean especially the way that dawn dresses is just like incredibly uh garish and and awful attention seeking uh perhaps there um 
and her mom's the same way, the way she dresses. But yeah. um yeah, I mean Steve, Mark, those guys dress normally. Yeah, but I mean, again, I think even if they are dressing normally, it reminded me just how hideous the way everyone dressed in 1996. I right, think. I mean, my, myself included, I'm sure. Yeah, the the it does capture a vibe of the suburbs pretty pretty well there. Yeah, and I did like like for example the incredibly hideous cake that the parents get for their anniversary with the pictures of their faces that look nothing like them. Yeah, so details like that I found amusing. One random thing when when Dawn's neighbor Ralphie, who is her best friend that she kind of throws throws aside, and he calls her on the phone, and for some reason there's this like striping on his phone that matches the striping on his shirt, and I don't know why that was, but I just found that a, a, a weirdly amusing detail. I mean, you want to talk about a brutal scene? He's calling, and Missy picks up the phone, and Dawn refuses to talk to him, and it's just blasting him with insult after insult after insult and he's just there listening and can't really do anything about it and i mean ralphie's big line it's brandon in the movie is you think you're such hot shit but really you're just called diarrhea so you know everyone is uh, a dick to everyone josh that's that's kind of where we're at that is where we're at so uh do we want to give this movie a rating out of uh i don't know clarinets uh, there you go. That's innocuous. How many clarinets yeah. do you want to give? This? I give it three and a half clarinets, man. Three and a half. And I'm guessing you are not going to agree. No, no. I, uh, I'm i going to give it two clarinets out of wow. five. That's a and really low rating for uh, for you. I mean, it's higher than I would rate. I was looking at other Todd Solon's. Well, maybe not every other, but uh, I definitely had rated happiness one star out of five on Letterboxd, um, I noticed. so <laughs> I haven't seen happiness since it came out, but I, I remember that was a brutally difficult movie to watch as well. Yeah. Well, we'll talk about that one then and, and other related things uh, for the legacy of Welcome to the Dollhouse when we come right back. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this episode of our season on the films of 1996, we've been talking about the Sundance Film Festival Grand Jury Prize winner, Welcome to the Dollhouse from filmmaker Todd Solons, which Jason liked a lot and I did not so much like. But uh, as we were saying, critics at the time liked it a lot. It was a fairly big hit for an indie movie. It was nominated for some awards. And it seemed like this was going to catapult Todd Solons into a bigger career along the lines of all of these indie filmmakers who came out of the 90s. I mean, we talked about in recent episodes, we talked about, you know, Doug Lyman and John Favreau. We talked about Wes Anderson in our 94 season. We talked about people like Quentin Tarantino and Kevin Smith. And I feel like this movie was positioning Todd Solons to be someone like that. And then he decided he was going to do everything that he possibly could to ruin that with the later movies that he made. Yeah, I think when we were talking about it uh, on the phone, you had said like he just wanted to alienate as many uh, people who like his work as possible, <laughs> um, which I think is fair. I mean, I was such a fan of this movie. And then I saw happiness and I think I saw storytelling. And then by the end of storytelling, I was like, I'm, I'm good on Todd Solon. So I, I haven't really seen anything else since then. Yeah. I mean, happiness, like I was saying, I, it's been a while. It was only cause I, I remembered I could look up what rating I had given it, but I remember just absolutely loathing that movie. And the only other one, I don't think I, I may have seen storytelling, but I can't remember. 
And I did see Palindromes, which was his next movie, I think, after storytelling. And I looked up, I had written a review of that for Las Vegas Weekly, and I was actually sort of generous. I think I gave it two and a half stars and was basically like, oh, here's some more Todd Solon's bullshit, um, was essentially the tone of my review. But I do think that those movies, I mean, if you watch, you watch Welcome to the Dollhouse and there's things like the threat of rape and the kidnapping by a pedophile and these, these really horrible things, but there's, there's some level of balance to that where people could identify with stuff. Obviously people, a lot of people identified with Dawn and the the stuff that she goes through. And there was the humor that people found in it. And I think in his later movies, he just doubled down on those horrible things and kind of got away from the relatability of characters and from the humor. And it was just like, here's pedophilia, here's rape, here's all of these like horrible, horrible behaviors like that he's shoving in your face. Like his movies, you know, or like, you know, with your dog, you shove its face in the pile of shit that it made. And that's kind of what his movies feel like. Well, yeah, I'm glad you said that because it it kind of reverberates what I think is the theme of this episode is that anything can be humorous. It's just a matter of if you have the ability to make it humorous. So while, of course, we are not advocating any of these behaviors, we are advocating your ability to use your art to craft something about it, which I think he did really well in this film. And you think he did not do well at all. But going forward, I got to that point also where I was like, this is just, this is just too brutal to watch right now. Yeah. And I think even though I I don't think it necessarily works in this one, I think it comes closest here that you can see how it would work here. And I can see how people appreciate this movie. And in the later movies, it's just completely... It's just completely gone. But I mean, he continues making movies on a semi-regular basis. You know, he obviously has some level of following and he manages to get some financing and some pretty decently known actors who are willing to show up in his movies even, even later on. You know, the last movie he made was in 2016, but I'm sure he'll get something else going. And, and we can mention, as, as briefly alluded to, the characters from this movie, from Welcome to the Dollhouse, show up in, in sort of weird other forms, I guess you could say, in some later uh, Todd Solon's movies with contradictory things happening to them. So Dawn, uh, the movie Palindromes, it opens with Dawn's funeral. So you don't see her on screen, but she's died. I think she's killed herself at age 20. Yeah, she got pregnant in college and then killed herself. And got really fat. So he makes her get fat, get accidentally pregnant, and then commit suicide. Uh, so that's kind of the kickoff for that movie. And I think the main character of that movie is meant to be like Dawn's cousin and the, but her family members, her father and and mother and her brother, Mark, who we were mentioning show up in palindromes. I assume I, I, it's been so long since I saw it. I don't remember, but I assume just like at the funeral, uh, played by those same actors from, from welcome to the dollhouse. And then they show up again in the movie Life During Wartime, played by different actors, which has become one of Todd Solon's things, is replacing the actors. I mean, Palindromes itself, the whole point of that movie is the main character is played by like seven different actors or something like that. And the most recent Todd Solon's movie is called Wiener Dog from 2016. And in that movie, Dawn has not died. 
Dawn has grown up to be played by Greta Gerwig, which is quite an optimistic result for Dawn, I think, um, and is now working as, I think it's either a vet veterinarian or like a veterinarian's assistant. And uh, and Brandon also shows up, played by Kieran Culkin, and they seem to have like a, again, I haven't actually seen this, so this is my going on reading the plot summary, but it sounds like they actually have almost like a happy ending as a couple, which is a weird way for things to turn out. Alternate timelines, baby. Now we're getting into yeah. the science of the whole thing. And that's what that's what this podcast is really about, Josh. The Mandela mm-hmm. effect and what reality are we living in? Yeah. So I assume you haven't you haven't seen any of those those later movies where the I stopped at storytelling, up. but I would watch them. You know, I, yeah. I would watch them. And uh he, he does have one in development that sounds very Solensy, but it sounds like it could be funny. It's about a kid who doesn't like that his it's either his dad or his stepdad takes the mother's attention away from the kid. So he sets up an accident and it kills the father figure. And uh, now he wants like the handyman to marry his mom. And that actually happens, but that also takes away attention. So now he's going to plot a accident to get rid of him as well. Yeah. This doesn't sound like anything I want to see. Although I will, I will say that, that wiener dog um, after, I think after a, a fairly long period where, even critics had kind of given up on Todd Solon's Wiener Dog, got some good reviews. So maybe, I don't think I would bother, but maybe if you uh, lost track of him for a while, that might be a worthwhile one to return to. I don't know. I don't but, know either, um, Josh. Stuff, his stuff is not for me. Heather Matarazzo and Brendan Sexton both, as we said, basically made their debuts with this movie. And they both had like kind of okay careers, I guess you would say. They're They're working character actors, but nothing... You know, neither of them became big stars or anything like that. I mean, the sad, the sad thing is, uh, Mark, the guy who played Mark just died. Like, oh, really? Ago. I hadn't, I hadn't seen that. That's yeah, uh, that sad. He's he was like forty-seven. Uh, Dave, you want to look up his name real fast? Oh, I have it. Uh, Math Matthew Faber is his name. Yeah, who was a working actor, you know, and he just died in his home, like in March. That is terrible, and sounds like something that Todd Solons would do in one of his movies. <laughs> So, right, right. <laughs> yeah, well, that's a sad note to end on. Uh, the only other legacy thing I noted down was we already mentioned uh, the debut of good old Ken Lung, who we we both know from Lost as Miles, but he's also a working actor. He's been on uh, various TV shows and stuff. So uh, he had a good subplot in The Sopranos with Junior Soprano when they were both in like a mental institution, and you know he was going to become Junior's kind of right hand man in crime. I have not seen that, but I always liked him on Lost and. Uh, you know, he uh, came a long way from being the keyboard player in the quadratics. <laughs> so good for him. Uh, any other things about the legacy that you wanted to mention, Jason? No, other than you've really made me re-examine what I find funny, Josh. I have a lot of uh, <laughs> self-reflection to do after this film, after this episode. And uh, it's uh, it's going to be a tough road to hope for me. Ah, well, I think we always, it's always interesting when the episodes lead to your self-reflection, like in uh, Margot at the Wedding. So I think that qualifies this episode as a success. So. It's just so strange to me that like, that I can see this because you and I, you know, we have similar senses of humor in a lot of areas and yeah, it's so weird to me that I could find it so funny and you find it so completely not funny. Yeah, I mean, that's, uh, you know, that's the subjectivity of comedy. And, and you know, and again, as I said, like, you're not the only one. The The general response to this movie is to find it funny. So I'm the outlier here, not you, if that makes you feel any better. Oh, I feel so much better. 
Now yeah. I know why John Fina used to beat you up so much. Call back. <laughs> All right. Call back. Thank you. Good old John Fina. I hope John Fina is listening to this podcast. Uh, so that's Welcome to the Dollhouse. And that's this episode of Awesome Movie Year. You can bully us on social media. Please don't. We don't like being bullied on social media, but we do like interacting and talking uh, with you guys in a positive manner and, uh, you know, having your opinions heard on this or any other film. Uh, I'm at uh, Jason Harris Comedy on uh, Facebook and uh, Instagram, J Harris Comedy on Twitter. Go for Jason.com, just taking over the World Wide Web as a, as a site to behold. Then we're at uh, awesomemovieyear.com, which is just, spoiler alert, it's just our feed of episodes. But hey, if you missed one, that's a good place to look. Um, yeah. And we're at Awesome Movie Year on Facebook and Instagram, Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter. I am at JoshBellaHatesEverything.com, JoshBellaHatesEverything on Facebook, and at SignalBleed on Twitter. What do we have for our next episode, Jason? Well, let's let, let's let Dave plug his socials first. Oh, I totally missed that. I'm sorry, Dave. We've been, we've been bullied, bullied you into- Bullying me. Oh, Dave, yeah. we got so to listen sad. to Dave's awesome podcast, piecing it together. Uh, you can find us wherever you listen to this great podcast. And of course, follow us over on social media at Piecing Pod. And by the way, Jason, uh, the awesome movie, your website also has an about section. So oh, I should probably look at that since I'm probably, it probably references me and, and you guys I, as well. So. I hope that it does. Okay. Uh, so now Jason, tell us what is on our next episode. It is uh, the best picture winner of 1996. And not just that, one of the most uh, award winning films in Academy Award history, The English Patient. And a movie that I had not ever seen. So that'll be an interesting thing to talk about. Tune in next time for The English Patient. Thanks for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Thank you for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Make sure to follow Awesome Movie Year on Facebook, at Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter, and at Awesome Movie Year on Instagram. And if you like the show, review us and rate us with five stars on Apple Podcasts. An All Points West production, produced by David Rosen in Las Vegas.